joined by Dr. Ryan Gregory from the University of Guelph. Dr. Gregory, along with a couple of academic colleagues, uh, pulled a pretty slick pivot when we were confronted by a pandemic, pivot being the operative word of how people respond, he and his professor colleagues decided to have a course on pandemics and wrote about it at theconversation.com in a piece entitled A University Course on Pandemics, What We Learned When 80 Experts, 300 Alumni, and 600 Students Showed Up. Dr. Ryan Gregory from the University of Guelph is on the line now. Ryan, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thanks for your interest in the course. Well, it's our pleasure entirely, and it was a pretty darn slick pivot, if you don't mind my saying, Dr. Gregory, and it's pretty pretty early on in the game when you realized what, what, what pivoting meant. Uh, you and your colleagues decided, well, as long as we're going through this thing, let's see what we can do about learning about it. Talk to us about the formulation of the, of the course in the first place. Well, you've hit it quite accurately there, which was we were you know, all sort of trying to make sense of what was happening in a variety of contexts, one of them being what our teaching was going to look like. Yeah. And we sort of had a pretty strong sense we were going to be doing this remotely. And we, uh, you know, a group of colleagues got together and were discussing these issues. And, and the idea kind of came up about, you know, what if we leaned into this situation and we developed an online course all about pandemics? You know, instead of trying to weave little bits into our courses here and there or to avoid the topic, let's just do a whole thing on pandemics. And, right. uh, yeah, there, there certainly was a little bit of a question as to whether people were kind of pandemic out already. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's in the news every day and have they already heard enough? And, and what we decided was people probably were tired of hearing a lot of the same things. But what wasn't available was a really broad perspective, you know, looking at pandemics current and past from all kinds of different uh, areas of expertise and really diving into the experience as we're living it. And I'm really glad we did that because it was just an exceptional experience. Now, let's, let's put a timeline on this because you've done a couple of semesters of this already, but you started and, and you began last summer. So we were at that point uh, with the lockdowns in March. We were brought three or four months maybe into the pandemic when you began this course, correct? That, that's right. We started, I think, serious discussion about the planning was early May. Uh, proceeded through through the sum, the summer, and then the first offering was fall 2020, so September 2020, and then we mm-hmm. ended up doing it again, uh, kind of backed by popular demand, really, in winter uh, 21. So, yeah, very early. I think we had a fairly good sense that this wasn't going to be a short period where we were going to be pivoting, as you say, that this mm. was something that was going to have fairly significant impacts uh, but no, at that point, we had been home, working from home for only maybe two months or so. So yeah, it was it was quite early. And you were talking about back by popular demand because you did have a second offering, which suggests then, Ryan, that the first time around was pretty popular because uh, unlike perhaps your, your expectations, which you were, you, you, were, you were talking about concern about sort of pandemic boredom or pandemic fatigue, I, I, would, uh, I, I would imagine the response surprised you to the extent that a lot of people decided, well, as long as we're going through this thing, we might as well take advantage of it and make, turn it into as much of a positive as we possibly can. That was exactly the idea. And what happened, the initial offering, we had uh, a smaller number of students. In the second time around, what happened to us was we opened the course again, and it filled up so quickly, we ended up adding uh, 
uh, to the overall cap on enrollment and increased the number of alumni that we were inviting to register and take part in the panels as well. So the second offering was actually larger than the first, in part due to that demand. And I think that was something to do with word of mouth. And I think there was some attention being uh, gained by the course and students were telling their peers that this was actually really interesting and you should take it. And I should say the second offering was entirely different from the first. It was almost entirely different panel uh, lineups, different topics. The theme had changed completely. And we are organizing a, a version to do again in the fall, which will have a third totally different theme. I'll bet. I'll just bet. And I'll bet you the, the fall, I'll bet you it is subscribed as uh, even more heavily than the previous efforts uh, with with, all, with the uh, uh, interest shown. Uh, Ryan, let's talk a little bit about how you break it down, because you talked about panels and inviting experts to speak. So when you're studying a pandemic during a pandemic, this is interesting stuff. What aspects of it do you study? How do you break it down? We actually, in the first instance, like I'll, I'll talk just a little briefly about the two semesters because we took very different approaches. Right, yeah. In the first case, it was a lot of brainstorming and what kinds of things might be, you know, of interest or being affected by the pandemic. And so there was a lot of just starting to think as broadly as possible. And also it's somewhat dictated by what kinds of expertise we have on campus because we were inviting mm-hmm. colleagues from around different departments. And uh, I had asked other department chairs, do you think there's people in your departments who might have something to say on this topic and got a very long list of suggestions. So we started contacting colleagues. And I have to say that I don't think anyone turned us down except in cases where they were not able to attend for some, you know, conflict and scheduling or something. Right. Sure. So everybody was very enthusiastic about the idea. Uh, I would say we probably underestimated in some ways how broad the topic is and how many different types of scholarship and expertise can can be brought to bear on understanding it. So we, we did invite, you know, we had musicians and we had art historians and philosophers and, of course, biologists, virologists, epidemiologists and all of those. But we had, you know, food scientists and you name it. And we actually had panels that were fairly eclectic in some cases. It wasn't like a whole panel of scientists necessarily. Mm. And then the next week, a whole panel of historians. It was intermixed in many cases to get different perspectives. And it just kind of grew organically from there. And I have to say, each week, we just came out of it thinking, wow, that was so incredibly interesting. And I had no idea that this was going on or that that it was looked at this way or that this had already happened in the past, for example, or any of those sorts of things. So it's hugely educational for us as well. Can um, I in, the take, second, can just... in the second instance, well, I was just going to mention in the second instance, we took a very different approach. So this wasn't so early. This was people that had some time. Yes. And the University of Guelph, the research office, had funded a number of different scholarly activities, research and science, but also art projects and social science and humanities work. And so we started with that list of people who had been uh, funded to do research on COVID in some form and assembled panels to talk about the creativity and scholarship that had, had uh, arisen during the pandemic. And so oh. it was the first, first semester was really kind of just trying to navigate what we were living in real time. And by, the, by January, we were already in a position to talk a lot about things that people had been doing in response to the pandemic and things they had learned already and research they were doing and so on. So it was very different. The third version in the fall, we're 
optimistically, maybe, entitling After the Pandemic. Uh-huh. And the idea will be to talk about the short and long-term impacts on all kinds of different social systems and cultural aspects and science and all the rest moving forward. Our guest joining us from the University of Guelph in Ontario is a Professor of uh, Biology, Dr. Ryan Gregory. He is one of a trio of uh, professors, an anthropologist, a biologist, and a historian who last year put together a course at the University of Guelph entitled Pandemics, Culture, Science, and Society, a multidisciplinary course with 12 modules, and it turned out to be a ginormous hit to the point where they put it together a second time, treated it very differently, and were uh, subscribed to the max as well. And now they're contemplating a third round of a university course on pandemics. You can read about this at theconversation.com. The piece is entitled, A University Course on Pandemics, What We Learned when 80 experts, 300 alumni, and 600 students showed up. Dr. Ryan Gregory is with us from the University of Guelph. And Ryan, an aside, if you don't mind, sir, just for a second, because it says uh, that you are a professor of integrated biology. You're the biologist in the trio of academics that put this course together. What is integrated biology? Uh, Integrative biology is uh, meant to capture the fact that we look at, in our department, look at research from a variety of different angles, but that they overlap and uh, intersect. So the department actually formed as a merger of what was a zoology and botany department. And the idea was to bring together people working on animals and plants. But we also have researchers who do evolutionary biology, ecology, uh, physiology, and the interface between those. So the integrative piece is that we bring those things together and take a multidisciplinary approach on a number of questions, albeit far more narrow than we saw with the pandemics course, which was across the entire campus. Mm-hmm. And, 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 the, uh, and participated in by students and alumni, graduates and students in all sorts of disciplines. It was just flat out interesting to a lot of people. And that part probably surprised you a little bit, didn't it? Well, I think the level of interest was uh, maybe higher than we expected. We, we had hopes, certainly, that it would you know, attract sufficient numbers to fill up uh, and that alumni would be interested. I did hear a comment from one uh, alum who took the course who said it was like trying to get Rolling Stones tickets when it opened up to the alumni because it, <laughs> you know, it was capped at a certain number. And I said, well, sure. that's, you know, that's fantastic. Uh, and we actually at one point ended up increasing the number of spots that we made available. So, yeah, very popular. We did have it uh, open to as an elective to students in any major uh, in any year. So first through fourth years were enrolled in the course. You, you talk in your description of this whole exercise about something called the COVID-19 infodemic. And I think it's a very apt word to use. What, what did you mean by infodemic, Ryan? We heard from a number of people with expertise in media and communication uh, about the, the one of the aspects of this particular pandemic that's different from the past, I think, is that the availability of information and on the flip side, misinformation True. is vastly higher than it's ever been in any kind mm-hmm. of past pandemic or plague, obviously. So not only do we have access to essentially up to the minute information, if you wanted to go and check how many vaccines were delivered in your region yesterday, what's the case count, how many deaths had there been, and so on. You can find that information out for just about anywhere in the world in real time. That's unprecedented, the level of information. It may have had the effect, though, as we talked about at the the outset, about 
you know, leading to some pandemic fatigue fairly quickly. Yes. Just overwhelming that level of information. At the same time, we've seen, you know, a, an enormous uh, rise in misinformation campaigns. Everything from the pandemic isn't really a thing, it's a hoax, to vaccine uh, misinformation and, you know, conspiracies about vaccination and yes. so on. And as you see, uh, one of the big challenges in, in getting us to that next point and justifying our title in the fall of after the pandemic is vaccine uptake. So we had experts talking about vaccine hesitancy and why that happened mm-hmm. and the, the importance of trust between the scientific community and the public. We talked about who was communicating the information. So you started to see, for example, it wasn't always just politicians. You had scientists and doctors on the front lines conveying that information directly in press conferences and so on. So the system of information was vastly broader, uh, but it was also, I think, a double-edged sword in the sense that misinformation also had risen. So that's the sort of infodemic, this just fire hose of information and misinformation that made it, it, honestly, a pretty bewildering experience early on, especially to make sense of what was even happening. And we tried to, you know, put it in more context, the scientific context. We had experts talking about how they model the spread of disease and what the rate of transmission is and all those sorts of things. But we also had the historical context, which was really useful. So talking about plagues and pandemics of the past Mm -hmm. and giving an example of sort of how societies have been affected by those and how they've made it through and what the recovery looked like. Right. And how that is or maybe isn't as directly relevant to what we're experiencing. And, and a lot of times it was really remarkable, some of the things that uh, we think are, you know, have never happened before. And they certainly haven't in our lifetimes. But they're, you know, they happen at some interval in human history and they have similar impacts. What uh, as we live through and learn uh, through uh, a human experience, our shared experience in the, in this pandemic, and and you've, you're planning round three of this living through a pandemic course as it evolves, and so do we. Uh, what do you think we've learned so far, Ryan? That will be included in chapter three or course number three, the valuable lessons that we have all absorbed in in many cases, like it or not. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm, I'm actually hopeful we have absorbed many of the lessons and we aren't going to lose uh, some of the things that we've improved on or some of the things that we've become aware of. And, and that touches on any number of different things. So from a sort of practical standpoint, I think we've learned an enormous amount about the value of international scientific collaboration and okay. accelerating uh, vaccine development and deployment. You know, so the science has advanced dramatically. The mRNA vaccines, for example, are a, a fairly new approach to this kind of thing. So, that, so I think in science, obviously, there's an enormous amount. I think also, though, we've found a number of pressure points in our uh, societal systems that we maybe weren't quite as aware of. So I'd get one sort of fascinating example to me was about the food system in Canada. You may remember that early period where you couldn't buy flour Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you That's couldn't right. find it, right? And and so it wasn't entirely uh, based on hoarding. It wasn't a supply issue. It was more of a packaging issue. We didn't have the small bags in sufficient numbers to, to have the consumer level. It was, you know, we had flour, but it was in the large bakery-sized sure. um, uh, packaging. And so it, we, it was described to us that the food system flexed, it bent, but it didn't break, and it's actually quite resilient. But it did highlight 
you know, distribution bottlenecks and issues mm-hmm. with the migrant worker system and uh, those kinds of issues and consumer confidence and the experience of grocery store workers and all right. of those kinds of things. That And that's just on the food system. We also, I think, learned a lot about accessibility and inclusion. And we had a couple of uh, discussions specifically on that. We We engaged with the Guelph Black Heritage Society and the Guelph Civic Museum mm-hmm. to talk about how do you capture the experience and make sure all the voices are heard because not everyone's experiencing this the same way. True. It's disproportionately affecting certain groups of people and we need to make sure we capture that. And we talked about accessibility and education. Uh, I think there's a lot of things we thought we couldn't do, you know, uh, working from home or having online uh, course formats or, you know, flexible assignment dates and all those sorts of things that we thought we couldn't really do within an academic system. And then we were all sort of forced to do it and realized actually it's not that hard to do and right. it has huge benefits. So I'm really hopeful that we've learned all kinds of different positive things. And in part, that's people in privileged positions having experienced, you know, challenges they may not have uh, thought of before. Like, when, what is it like when you can't access a building? What is it like when you can't have good internet and you need to be in a meeting? You know, those are things that we all kind of realized firsthand how important they are. And so I'm really hopeful that, that, that there were a number of very significant lessons across many aspects of culture and society that we will take with us. And that's what, we, at, that, as you say, that's exactly what we're hoping to explore in the third iteration of the course, which is... Well- what have we learned and how do we lock down some of those positive changes? I think perhaps one of the most, one of the most amazing things that we've all learned is, is the, is the science and you touched on this and I, I'm just returning to it because it's still absolutely jaw droppingly quite bloody amazing, Ryan. The fact that <laughs> we, we've come out of, out of, out of the, out of the blue and in less than a year, not only uh, responded to the, uh, uh, to identification of a, of a, an, a previously unknown virus, we've, uh, the scientific teams around the world have actually developed virus to and 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 to, and also manage to mass produce varieties of virus that are now a- available to hundreds of millions of people on the planet this has all taken place in a matter of months it's absolutely astonishing yeah and i mean so i'm a scientist by training and trade and i still am blown away by what my colleagues in those fields have accomplished you know, this that's one of the things that is dramatically different about COVID-19 as compared to previous pandemics or plagues mm-hmm. is the the ability to mount a response, a global response that can identify and and uh, basically mitigate. And then ultimately, I hope, uh, if not eradicate, then greatly reduce the effects of an emerging disease. Now, we, I hope, also have learned about the risk factors for emergence of new pandemics, you know, encroachment on uh, wildlife and global travel and those kinds of things are also very important to keep, to take lessons from. But you're right. This Mm -hmm. is not like anything that's happened before. And I do hope people recognize just how incredible it is that, that, you know, scientists from around the world work together. Um, We saw a lot of dropping of barriers and a lot of collaboration, open sharing of data, you know, those kinds of things that, again, very positive change, I hope, continue uh, with others. And the, the, the scale of rolling out a worldwide vaccine campaign, that's never happened. And, exactly. you know, hiccup, hiccups aside, I would say 
very impressive and I hope um, continues to get us, you know, closer and closer to, to return to, if not normal, because I don't think normal was great in every way, but at least to a, a better place than we've been in the last year. Absolutely. Dr. Gregory, a pleasure to have you on the program this morning, sir. And as we get a little closer to the next semester, um, we're going to bug you again to uh, to talk a little bit about what you've decided on the curriculum load is going to look like, and we'll update each other on how things have gone over the summer. You good for a chat in a few months? Absolutely. This was great, and I'm happy to talk again. Terrific. Thank you for this this morning, Ryan. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Indeed. Have a great weekend. You too. Dr. Ryan Gregory joining us from the University of Guelph. You want to find out what he and his team did or have been doing for the last year. Uh, they, In addition to their regular work, they put together, and here's the article title, A University Course on Pandemics. What we learned when 80 experts, 300 alumni, and 600 students showed up. It's all there at theconversation.com. Linda Annis is a Surrey City Councilor and also the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers Executive Director. And she's here to talk about the 9 at 9 Summer Crime Prevention Program. Councilor Annis, Linda, good morning. Welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. It's always good to talk to you, Sterling. Now, let's talk about nine at nine. A couple of things I want to talk to you about, including the uh, the funding from the province of the uh, gang violence thing. But I want to, first of all, talk about nine at nine. It's a crime prevention strategy. And uh, you talk about, I mean, it's simple stuff. But, you know, as the summer goes on, uh, you know, you, you start working in the garden in the backyard, for example, and you forget to lock your front door. It's something that's bad guys can rip you off. And you're out there on your hands and knees in the, in the petunias and you don't even know what happened. So it's all about nine at nine and nine referring to nine at night in this case right absolutely i always like to keep a little checklist because you're right uh, you're out in the garden enjoying yourself and it's easy to forget that your front door isn't locked or your garage door oftentimes is left wide open because True. you're yep. running back and forth getting garden tools yep and absolutely it's just an open invitation to somebody walking or driving by to help themselves to your belongings and we don't think about it. We're busy doing, you know, making the place look nice and uh, attending to the job jar details. So, you know, you tend to sort of let your guard down, especially because it's your place, don't you? You sure do. And I think something that oftentimes people do that, particularly while we're all at home, we're going out in the evenings with our families on bike rides, come home, we're tired, we just put the bikes beside the uh, side of our house, run in to maybe get a glass of water, and boom, our bikes are gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, We always have to make sure that our equipment uh, is put away safely before we go inside. Linda, can you take us, walk us through the nine things you can do at 9 p.m. list, please, this morning? I sure can. Uh, One of the things that I always remember to do, at least try to remember to do, is make sure if I'm leaving my car out of the garage that I make sure that there are no valuables in it, including my garage door opener, because somebody can get your garage door open and boom, they're in your garage in an instant while you're sleeping and you don't even know it. Also make sure that you don't leave change or empty bottles, uh, you know, hanging about in your car. Another really important thing to do is to make sure that your bikes, your ladders, and your garden equipment is put away for the night and locked up. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the back 
yard or wherever you might be, make sure that you don't have windows or doors open. We oftentimes, particularly as it gets hotter in the summer, we like to leave our garage door open just a wee bit. Well, somebody can crawl under and get into your house before you even know it. And if you have an alarm, be sure to check your equipment, make sure it's working, and make sure that you have it on, even if you're in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Another really good tip, I think, too, is to keep your porch light on at night. Uh, it just prevents you know, anyone from lurking around your house. And as we get ready to go on our summer vacations or our state vacations, and I think we're all, because we're at home, are ordering a lot more merchandise online. True, yep. Make sure that if you aren't going to be home, that somebody can pick it up for you, that you can redirect your parcels to your neighbor, because mm-hmm. they may disappear before you get back home. True. And another thing that I would mention, too, is, you know, don't let newspapers and flyers pile up on your front door. That's just an open invitation. Hey, yeah, I bet these people are away. Uh, And something else that I I think oftentimes people do, if they're dashing away for 15 minutes, they put a post-it note in their door. Don't do it. Again, it's just an open invitation that there's, uh, uh, that there's nobody at home at the moment. Right. And, and that old point of it, and it's an old, an old saw, but it's absolutely true. If you're going to be away from the house for a few days, now we don't get newspapers typically delivered as frequently as we once upon a time used to, but you still get your weekly and you still get your flyers. And it doesn't take long for a little pile of paper to accumulate right in front of your front door. And all you have to remember is that all the bad guys do is drive around through neighborhoods looking for clues, don't they, Linda? And as soon as they see a a bunch of newspapers in front of a door that looks like they haven't been gathered for a few days, they're looking at, well, probably uh, owner away, uh, unoccupied residence, write that address down. It's, it's, I mean, they're just looking for obvious clues. And the more obvious the clue, the easier it is for them to do those crimes of opportunity, isn't it? It sure is. And I think something that we all are guilty of doing, we love our social media and we tend to post things when we're going away. Yep. You know, look at me at the beach in Hawaii. Well, if you're at the beach in Hawaii, it's very easy for somebody to figure out where you live and go to your house and break in. So be very, very careful with what you're putting on social media, not to you know, say where you, where you are. You need to make your house look like you're home all the time. Right. And sometimes it, uh, it takes a little cooperation with maybe the next door neighbor to come over and clean off the front stoop so you don't have a whack of newspapers there or a family member to come by and, and just uh, clean things up at the front a little. Uh, Linda, I need to change gears because I don't have all the time in the world. And I want you to tell us about the 200000 in funding from the province and what you're going to do with it with respect to gang violence. Well, as we know, we've had a real resurgence, unfortunately, with gang violence in the Lower Mainland. And I might add, not just in the Lower Main, but throughout British Columbia. Yeah. And the provincial government has given us uh, $200,000 to develop a, a marketing campaign to create awareness on how to report gang activity. We're all um, responsible for our own personal safety and the safety of our neighbors and, and friends. And so if we see something that we suspect is is suspected gang activity, you need to report it. The police can't be everywhere. We all play a role in this. And mm-hmm. I would encourage, if you see anything, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. Or uh, if you are comfortable, please call the police. And if it's a crime in progress, 
do call 911. All right. 1-800-222-TIPS. That's the magic number for Crime Stoppers. Linda Annis, thank you for this. Uh, some very timely reminders in terms of uh, making going away plans. And uh, good luck with the information campaign on gang violence. Anything we can do to, to tap that down is greatly appreciated. Thanks for this this morning. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Great as always, Sterling. There's Linda Annis, the uh, Crime Stoppers Executive Director and Surrey City Councillor. We uh, turn our attention to something we knew was coming and is already in our midst. And every time something bad happens, there are bad actors who will try to make things even worse for some. The Metro Vancouver Better Business Bureau is warning these days about potential scams trying to capitalize on the residential schools tragedy by tricking people who want to make donations. Here to talk to us about this bad actor stuff is the senior manager, media and and communications with the Better Business Bureau of British Columbia. A pleasure to welcome, welcome rather, Kyla Laird back to the program. Kyla, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you, Carla. It's just unfortunate that every time you and I talk, it's, it's always, always about some news. really awful stuff. And and this, you know, again, whenever there's something that captures the national imagination and, and the kind of media attention that this, uh, this event in, in Kamloops has caused, clearly there are bad actors who will try to capitalize on misfortune and tragedy. So tell us exactly what's going on this time. And some of it has to do with orange shirts, doesn't it? Yes. As, as a matter of fact, it primarily has to do with the orange shirts. So what happened is we received a call from a senior that lives in Surrey. Um, she was on Facebook and she saw a sponsored ad with that had orange shirts. Every Child Matters on those shirts. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and there's a claim with the ad saying that if you make a purchase, proceeds from your purchase will go towards, and they were very specific of by saying the Indian Residential School Survivor Society, okay. which we know is a, a, an organization that that supports indigenous people. Indeed. And so with that, with that being said, it, it was almost, you know, instant for her to go ahead and pick to see where this would take her and what she could do to make that purchase. Mm. So she's on this website. It takes her to this website called Toro. She's there. She's browsing through. She sees the shirts that they're promoting and that they're telling her will be sold and go to, and proceeds will go towards that that specific organization, but nothing on the website gives her more details about that donation. And when you Uh browse through the the, the website yourself, because I've actually been on the website and I look, there is literally nothing there. So if I had just bumped into that website accidentally without seeing that Facebook ad, I would not even know about any of these things that this specific ad is claiming. So she's suspicious. She shared it with us at BBB. We did our investigations, and it turns out that this specific website is actually a fake website. The information that they have in terms of their company address, they claim to be based in Tampa, Florida. They are the, so the address that they're using belongs to another company. So they've stolen another company's information, even down right. to the contact number of mm. that other company and claiming to be their own. So when you pick up the phone and you call the number on that website, it's another company is going to be answering that has no idea that their information is being used in this way. And so it just goes to show you the lens that scammers will go to get you to spend money, especially if you're not following through with the details that you're seeing online like this senior did. 
Mm-hmm. And the shirts, the, the challenge, of course, is that it's not a particularly huge amount of money. It's like $19, $20 U.S. for the shirt. So the idea being to make it so simple and such a small item, you're just happy to, to contribute and, and be part of it. And you don't think twice about the details, do you? Exactly. So it's just, it's seemingly insignificant. And I suppose even if you added taxes and shipping, you probably wouldn't be spending too much over 30 bucks. And so you're saying to yourself, okay, it's not a significant transaction. And that's possibly why so many people, at least from other platforms that we've seen reported about this organization followed through with purchases in the first place. People spent as much as $60 we're seeing in some instances on other platforms and they genuinely thought it wasn't an expensive transaction, but weeks have passed and they have either received some form of email saying, yes, your share package is on the way or just haven't heard anything at all from the company since, but ultimately no one has received any shirts whatsoever. Well, here's, here's what I thought you were going to say, Carla. And not only did they not receive their shirts, the information they gave to the company to purchase the shirts has been used against them and X number of thousand dollars has been recorded on that credit card. Now that hasn't happened yet, but that's, that's what they're right. after. They want your credit card information, don't they? That is right, because it comes down to, for instance, that same Facebook ad that the senior reported, we have searched extensively on Facebook and we cannot find it again, which means Mm. that it was just an opportunity for them to get a few people in a couple of hours to click on that link and take them to that website to see how many people they could get to spend money in that um, window of of time. And so that's what they call clickbaiting. So clickbaiting is where you see something, it's attractive, it's enticing, and it literally prompts you, urges you, everything inside you saying, I need to click on this when I see it. And right. so and because it's, because it's in. only, yeah, because it's only 20 or 30 bucks, you go, eh, no biggie. Right. And, and, yes. uh, and, and just move on. And that's you what they count on. They, that, that's what they count on your lapse of judgment, because it looks like the real the, the real deal. And naturally you want to do the right thing. Exactly. And so with all of that combined, as you rightfully said, it's, the perfect phishing scam because at the end of the day, persons who have made transactions, their personal information would have been shared. Their credit card information would have been shared. And if it's a case where, you know, they might have used other forms of um, purchasing, hopefully not like your debit card, then, you know, that, that connects directly to your bank account. So whatever payment details you would have shared, the scammers would not have that. And so most scammers tend to hold on to information for weeks and sometimes even months. And we've seen where years they'll hold on to it. And if nothing has changed with that data, when you least expect it, that's when you start seeing money disappearing. And if you're not one of those people that will, for instance, check your credit card statements actively on a monthly basis, you could miss those transactions for quite a while until, you know, something significant happens. Indeed. Now, Carla, the uh, consumer in this case did the right thing. She was apprehensive. She went to the website and uh, tried to find out where her donation to this worthy cause would go. And of course, there was no information provided. So she became suspicious and she called you. So how long when a person calls the Better Business Bureau, Carla, how long does it take you to investigate the complaint and get back to the person going, boy, you did the right thing. You absolutely, that is, that's a bogus website. How long does that investigation process take typically? It really depends on how much information they can give us at the start. 
So, you know, one of the main things we really wanted was a link to that Facebook sponsored ad that she saw, but we couldn't get that. But everything else that she gave us was enough for us to, for instance, call the BBB in West Florida to see where this specific address links back to. And then they were able to share with us that, hey, this address belongs to another company. Mm. And then they reached out to that company who verified that there is no affiliation with this T-Toro. So it, it really depends on the information that we get. It could be as little as a couple of hours especially if it's something that, that is really clear where there's no substantiated information about the business. But right. if it's another case where it's something local, for instance, um, we might need to reach out to the respective municipality and get information in terms of business licenses and some more detailed research would need to take place, um, especially if it's um, local. But depending on, so in her case where she called, it was a few hours because it was obvious oh, that it was a scam. Mm-hmm. But in the longer cases, when people actually go on to, to our BBB scam tracker and submit a report, we want to be extremely thorough because those reports tend to be about local cases. And right. so we take a little longer, maybe uh, 15 days to make sure we have all of that detail. Because in some instances, we will go to the address to see for ourselves who and what is there. As and so you, that might take to time do. too. Mm -hmm. And you also have give.org, don't you? Which is a great little site for uh, tips and prevention and common sense uh, ways to react to phishing and other clickbait and other attempts to invade your personal space. And that's very helpful as well. Carla, thanks for this this morning. It's unfortunate that whenever we do have a pleasant chat, it's always about some very unpleasant activities. But we do appreciate your time on a Saturday morning. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully one day it will be all about good news. (laughs) Indeed it will. And between now and then, take good care, and uh, we will talk again uh, as as necessity dictates. Thanks again. There's Carla Laird, the uh, Senior Manager with the Better Business Bureau here in British Columbia. Give.org is a terrific reference site just in terms of you're a little suspicious about wanting to do the right thing, then uh, go with your suspicion. Check it out. Be careful. It's a pleasure to welcome Harmon Dial back to the program. Harmon is the Vancouver reporter with The Athletic, and he's here to talk a little hockey because, well, we just couldn't go through a Saturday without something about hockey on the radio. Harmon, good morning. Welcome back. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit. Let's first of all talk a little bit about what's going on here in Vancouver because it'll only take a few seconds. And the only news out of the Canucks organization that I'm aware of is a is a slight change in the staffing at the assistant coach level. Has there been any other news in terms of personnel recently? Yeah, it's just been as you mentioned, kind of the the coaching staff rejigging. Uh, you had uh, Brad Shaw, who's uh, an experienced, bright mind, uh, used to be an assistant with the Columbus Blue Jackets, mm-hmm. uh, come over and, and he's and, and he's typically been uh, a defense and, and penalty kill kind of specialist uh, with the Blue Jackets and before with St. Louis, but he's coming in and, and he's going to play more of an associate role, kind of uh, Travis Green's right-hand man. Um, and as a result, um, you have a couple other minor moves. Uh, Kyle Gustafson, who is a longtime assistant coach of Travis Green's in Portland of the WHL, comes in as uh, a special assignments and uh, systems work uh, uh, coach. And then um, you had the Newell Brown, the old power play coach, out of the picture. And then that means Jason King, who was uh, already on staff, uh, is going to take over power play responsibilities. So just uh, just some changes there on the on the assistant coach uh, level front to, I think, uh, bring about some changes after the disappointing season they had last year. Well, no kidding. Uh, the, 
Wow, that's the understatement of the morning. Disappointing season, to say the very least. So in terms of the Canucks agenda, there are a couple of drafts coming up, Harmon. Uh, remind us of which is first. There's the expansion draft to staff out the Seattle Kraken, and then there's the amateur draft. So which is first, and uh, what, uh, did we not have just a draft lottery uh, a couple of weeks ago? When does all of this, give us the time sequencing of all of this. Yeah, so uh, I believe the expansion draft will uh, will come first, and uh, both of them are going to happen uh, next month in July. And okay. uh, as it first pertains to the expansion draft, uh, as you kind of alluded to, the thirty second team team that's going to be joining the NHL, it's kind of an asset harvesting moment for them, where they're going to pick uh, one player from. Uh, every team around the NHL, with the exception of Vegas, who was also just a recently uh, recent joined as a thirty first thirty first NHL team, and sure, yeah. so from uh, from the Canucks, yeah, exactly. And so from the Canucks' perspective, um, it's they're actually in a fairly advantageous position. They have a couple of uh, their best young players in uh, Quinn Hughes and Nils Hoglander that they that are exempt that they do not have to protect, and so. Um, they're not really at risk of losing a high-end player to Seattle. Okay. If anything, it's an opportunity for them where there are going to be other teams um, that have players that they can't protect and may lose to Seattle for nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. And a team, like, a team like the Canucks could uh, approach them and try and uh, acquire one of those players for pennies on the dollar because of that risk of losing them to Seattle for nothing. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the amateur draft lottery happened on June 2nd. Canucks are going to yep. be picking ninth overall. Uh, mm-hmm. They did not drop in the lottery for once, uh, which is uh, good news. And um, there, it's you know that the that's going to be a, a massive draft pick for them. The Canucks uh, at this stage, they have a number of key team needs. As you kind of think about their long-term ambition of building a, a cup contender, and anytime you pick top ten in the draft, that's an opportunity to select a. Uh, an impact player that could uh, yep. be part of your core for a long time. Indeed. So that's uh, that's what their summer looks like. Now, there are still a few teams. We call it the Final Four. These days in hockey, we borrowed from basketball. And it's an exciting Final Four. The Tampa Bay Lightning, no surprises there. We did a poll, Harm, about a month or so ago here just asking NW listeners, so who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup once the playoffs started, right? And the, the preponderance of opinion was that the Colorado Avalanche were going to walk away with the stuff having won the President's Trophy. Well, that's that that script has been torn up and thrown away because we got Vegas and Montreal. Let's talk about the Habs in Sin City, Game One Monday. How do you think Montreal is going to do? Yeah, I think on paper it's obviously uh, a bit of a lopsided matchup. There, you've got uh, Vegas, who actually um, was just just shy of, of Colorado for the President's Trophy, and then you have Montreal, who kind of barely limped in, limped into the playoffs. Um, but despite what you see on paper, I think there are ingredients there that for Montreal make it uh, the kind of stylistic matchup that they could keep up with. Uh, I, I think for number one, um, when you look at what Montreal uh, kind of has with, with Carey Price, it's an elite goaltender. And, and, if, and if we've noticed one thing about Vegas going back to the bubble last year where you know, they struggled against uh, the Canucks and, and Thatcher Demko to really put them away. And then in the mm-hmm. next round against Dallas, they ran into a hot goaltender. Golden Knights have uh, a tendency to, you know, struggle with finishing uh, when they run up against uh, an elite goaltender from time to time. That's where yeah. obviously the Habs have Carey Price, who could be an X factor for them. Uh, and, you know, Habs are, are right now 
just coming off the heels of some of their best hockey in the second round um, against Winnipeg, obviously an inferior opponent. Uh, but that was one of the most uh, dominant rounds of hockey uh, I've uh, I've seen this postseason. So they're going to be uh, on a high. And uh, the thing about a seven-game series is, um, and I always keep this in mind because, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I remember when uh, when Tampa had won the President's Trophy, just ran, ran right away with it. And, you know, that, that year Columbus swept them. That's so right. They got that, their clocks cleaned in the first round. They went out in four straight, didn't they? Exactly. And so, I mean, if you, even if you follow along with, with these playoffs, we've seen a lot of upsets, a lot of favorites go down. So sure. uh, while Vegas is heavily favored, I, I mean, there's, there's no counting on Montreal at this juncture. Interesting stuff. Well, a lot of us aren't counting out Montreal because, of course, they're, they're it as far as uh, cheering for the Great White North goes. And uh, they, they put on quite a show. Uh, final question to you, Harmon, because I'm almost out of time and very grateful for yours again. Uh, I said earlier, I think this, the playoffs that we've been treated to this very odd, peculiar off year have still turned out to be some of the most entertaining hockey I've seen in a very, very long time. Do you agree? Totally. I think, for instance... The Vegas Colorado series is, you know, that's one of the best series of playoff playoff hockey I've seen in years. Just the the pace of it, the physicality, the intensity, and then especially down south, we've had fans back even in Montreal's building yeah. in limited capacity. I think we've seen a great atmosphere for sure. Excellent, Harm. Great to have you back with us this morning. Thanks for jumping in. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Harmon Dial from the Vancouver Reporter with The Athletic joining us with a look at some hockey activity, which resumes tomorrow officially on the Eastern Front, Habs in Montreal and in Vegas on Monday. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.